Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. This week we have a very special guest joining us. Today I'm joined by psychotherapist and holistic counsellor Diane Young. Now, Di has over 40 years experience in addiction recovery and 12-step programs and is the trauma and addiction specialist at South Pacific Private, one of Australia's leading addiction treatment centres. Di heads up the Changes program at South Pacific Private, which is a deep experiential therapy program designed to identify and resolve lingering childhood trauma. And it was through this very program that I had the pleasure of meeting Di over two and a half years ago now. Since then, Di has continued to play a pivotal role in my recovery, and I'm forever grateful to have met her. So without any further delay, I'd love to welcome Di onto the show. Welcome, Di. How are you? Uh, Look, I'm very well, thank you, Ash, and I think it's very aptly called Behind the Smile. (laughs) For mental health, it's very good. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, I think what I found through my experience in recovery is that And as you would know, for so many years, I spent um, my time putting on this brave face, not being, um, not feeling safe enough to really show what was going on on the inside. And as a result, you know, it caused a lot of pain. So yeah, we're definitely hoping to remove the stigma around mental health by sharing these different conversations and um, bringing different topics to light, because I do think that recovery is, you know, quite a misunderstood field. So to be able to share different topics pertaining to this very broad concept, I suppose, is is what this show is all about. Now, how have you been? Look, I've been very well, Ash, and I'm I'm staggered when you say it's two and a half years since we met. It only seems like yesterday (laughs) that we met. Um, It's, uh, you know, since COVID, of course, I mean, it was busy before COVID. COVID just, I think, really took the lid off uh, mental health and people's ability to ask for help. And a number of people that I see privately, of course, are, you know, people that have really never, ever reached out for too much help. Mm. And I think COVID's allowed them to do that. So that's been a good thing. Yeah. And of course, the hospital remains as busy as ever. I have no doubt. Now, Di, you're an expert in a number of areas and there are so many different topics that I would love to pick your brain on. But the one that I wanted to discuss today was a a topic that I think really underpins recovery and addiction. And it's something that I think is highly prevalent within our society, yet is also highly misunderstood. And that is the topic of codependency. But before we dive into that topic today... I'd love our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So are you able to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, perhaps your own recovery journey and how you came to specialise in trauma and addiction? Well, of course, I'm happy to do that, Ash. Look, I've been in recovery for a very long time, decades and decades and decades, and um, that surprises me more than it surprises anybody else, really. 
Uh, and I came to recovery like many of us uh, when I was on my knees in my life uh, with nowhere else to go and uh, reached out for some help with some people uh, in 12-step community and got the help I needed. Now, back in those days, there were very few private mental health facilities for people to go to. So, you know, somehow or another, we shook and shivered our way through withdrawals and, and uh, really from the ground up, I suppose, grew into our recovery. Now, of course, it's much easier because, um, well, it's not easy to recover. I didn't mean that. I mean, it's easy to get help. Mm. So you can go into places like South Pacific and various other places and uh, be given a lot of valuable information about yourself and your history. And a lot of codependency, well, much all of it, I think, comes out of trauma from childhood. Mm. Uh, and it's a misunderstood um, thing. Mm. People think codependency is when we're just being very weak and placid in our lives. But, of course, I just saw a woman not, you know, 20 minutes ago who's now in terrible pain over the death of her mother and can't understand why, you know, she's saying things to me, why is it that I just I have to people please all the time? Mm. And this woman's a highly successful businesswoman. I start talking about codependence and childhood trauma. And she's going, no, 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 I didn't have any childhood trauma, you know. So it's, it is there and we do need a little bit of psycho ed around it. Because, mm. of course, if we're, if we're codependent, we're actually losing connection with our authentic self when we're little mm. and we're putting someone else's needs before our own. That's basically the subtitle of codependency. I can talk longer, but that's really what happens to us. I think, yeah, we'll definitely dive into it into more detail. But before we do, can you tell me, how did you yourself start working in the space of trauma and addiction? I'd always been fascinated by, you know, matters psychological and the human condition. Uh, and I often marvelled at people. I'd look at people who seem to do life very simply and very easily and others that really seem to trip themselves up all the time without it, without trying. Uh, and I was one of those. So even in my early years of recovery, I found that I would, uh, you know, relationships couldn't quite gel or, you know, business relationships didn't quite gel. Uh, and so I started reaching out for some professional help and started to learn about the fact that I was from an alcoholic family, that I had had quite a bit of trauma as a child. Uh, I knew that. It wasn't like I was naive about it. I just thought, well, that's how it was and that's back there. Not realising, of course, that what I'm in the middle of today as an adult person, if I haven't gone back and looked at my childhood, unpacked it, had conversations about it, even gotten conscious about it and aware, then I'm going to repeat patterns from my childhood so I'm effectively in my 30s doing child, you know, doing life like I'm 14 mm. emotionally. Mm. It's not a great recipe, is it, really? No, you know, just as you were saying that, it reminded me of when I came to South Pacific, not as a patient, but prior to that, a few years prior, I had attended the family weekend, the family program, which was four days where we were um, taken mm -hmm. through the, the developmental model, which we'll talk about a little later on. Um, and I remember sitting in that chair thinking to myself, this needs to be taught in schools. You know, it, it's almost my opinion mm. that, it is very unlikely that you will reach adulthood without having experienced some form of trauma, whether that's big T trauma or little T trauma. 
but we're not given the tools or equipped with the knowledge to be able to process that, move through it. And then more often than not, these children become adults who become parents and then they pass that on to their children and it's just this ongoing cycle. Hmm. Well, thankfully, now you're absolutely right. We do talk about intergenerational trauma uh, and, you know, I wish we had another word for it because if you say trauma or abuse to some people, they go, "Well, I, you know, I wasn't traumatized, and I'm not abu- I was not abused." And but of course, oftentimes it'll be even uh, some emotional abuse or enmeshment, you know, and people that's terribly misunderstood. But coming back to the point that you made about the model of developmental immaturity, which is the model that Pia Melody put together many, many decades ago, and that was largely to understand her own trauma. And understand why in her recovery, she's 26 years in to recovery and working and very functional, she was still haunted by um, abuse from her past. So she was the one that came up with the idea of the nature of a child, the fact that we need to be of value in the system, we need to be allowed to be appropriately vulnerable, we need to be allowed to be imperfect, Mm. we need to be allowed to be appropriately dependent and we need to be spontaneous and open. Now, most people listening to us today would say, well, yes, isn't that a given? Well, it's not for me, not for everybody. No. Because if you're parented by people who were not able to be any of those things, then they have no ability to, unless they get a lot of help, they, they have no ability to parent us any differently. Mm. Mm. I and that's where the rub is, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I relate to that. I remember... When I then came back in as a patient a few years ago and I looked at that model, I very much related to, you know, the perfectionist and having to be good and sitting in better than or less than and the idea of you can oscillate between between being too dependent or anti-dependent. And I think, which, mm. you know, it almost reminds me of when you come into recovery and you're taught about being right-sized, it's almost this same idea of, coming into center, finding your true authentic self and leading from a place of authenticity rather than trying to fit into different boxes based off what you had to be as a child to keep your parents happy or to keep the peace within the home and whatnot. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So let's circle back for a moment. You got into um, Mm -hmm. therapy through your own desire to self-discover and then you started working in the space when did you start working at south Mm. pacific or how did that all come about look it was very simple i i knew a couple of people that worked there um you know i'd started working as a therapist and i was really loving it i didn't think i actually thought my age would be against me (laughs) how wrong was i Mm. and um Probably an attribute, actually, when you work in this space. People think you're wise because you're older. Mm. That's not necessarily true, is it? But anyway, um, and they rang and, you know, rang and um, I'd finished my training. I'd had, you know, a dance with breast cancer, which was no fun at all, Uh, come out of that well, you know, uh, and just started to work again in the practice just privately. And they rang me and said, would you be interested in coming and doing changes? Now, I didn't know what changes was. That's the program that you referred to earlier, the early childhood trauma program. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm interested and I'm, you know, I'm always interested in a conversation. I said, well, let's have a conversation about it because I don't know what you want me to do. 
And so uh, they said, come down. I had a chat with them. It all seemed pretty straightforward at the time. And then they popped me in um, with uh, a very well-known um, South Pacific therapist, Jane O'Keefe, and said, watch Jane do changes. So I sat in with seven clients and Jane and me taking copious notes. And it was there that I could see that, you know, we refer to it as, as shame reduction work, mm. um, inner child work, where we, re, you know, re embrace ourselves. Now, just making the, coming back to the point you made about the childhood, there is always this position that we hold as adults where we think, well, that happened and that's just how it was. And mum and dad did their best. Now, no one's disputing that. Mum and dad did do their best because if they could have done better, they would have. And I'd say to you, Ash, that out of probably, I don't know how many thousands of people I've taken through two processes each in that week-long program, I would could count on one hand the amount of parents that actually meant to hurt their child, mm. like they had some other mental illness, right? More often than not, the parents aren't trying to hurt you. They're just coming from their own wound, if you want, with their own baggage, and some of them are not aware of any of it. So they come into changes and... Um, the part of us as children who were not able to be protected, say, I make up what this is what happens. So the part of us that's small, say we're eight, there's some sort of di serious dysfunction in the family system. At eight, we don't really know what it is. We just know we feel very uncomfortable when there's a lot of fighting going on or no one's talking to each other, whatever. Now, in, a, in an attempt, we can't protect ourselves. No one else is protecting us. So what we do is like... We hide that small part of ourselves away because we can't protect them. We then grow up into adulthood and what we find is we take the little wounded one with us but we don't know that we're doing that. So when we're entering relationships as we get through our teens and in our early 20s and things and even beyond, the part of us that, we, that was wounded that we have with us we do something weird with that. It's like we then start blaming that part of ourselves mm. for the pain we're in. It's like you're the reason that I got abused as a child. So we start to hate that part of ourselves or, and or disconnect from that part. Mm. Now, a lot of the work in Changes is about reconnecting with that part so we can then go and do our trauma work with the people who have abused us. And it's not only parents. It could be, you know, sports coaches. It could be teachers. It could be older kids in the neighbourhood, it could be neighbours, could be someone else in the family system, uncles, aunties, that sort of thing. So we want to reintroduce people to the part of themselves that is the most precious part. That's the small, well, spontaneous, open and loving part mm. that was never looked after when they were little. So it's very, very sacred work when you start to work with people in this. Absolutely. And you yourself know that because you've had that experience very much so. I think for me, that was the real game changer um, in the beginning of my recovery. It's where I was able to start to forgive little Ash and, you know, let go of that carried shame mm. and, and the stuff that I was holding on to that I wasn't even aware mm. that I was holding on to. I think one of the biggest um, mistruths that I told myself was that I was just this really happy, bubbly person 24 hours a day. And even... Um, I think yeah. it was my second week in, 
uh, my uh, primary therapist was going to give me, I can't remember what it's called now, but like when you get a warning, um, <laughs> um, normally it's... Oh, yes, a contract. Yes, a contract. If you know, normally you get these for if you've snuck, yeah. snuck outside for a ciggy or you've done, you know, you've continually sworn. <laughs> anyway, I nearly got given a contract for smiling too much because I was just so programmed to go into that default of put on the mask and... Um, you know, you you spoke about before about one of the responses we have as as wounded children is to disconnect, and I'm wondering is that why this work is done in an addiction treatment centre? Because so often when we disconnect, we then go we 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 turn to to drinking or using or gambling or sex or something to find that connection. Yeah, because we need it, right? Hmm. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, so what we end up doing if we're disconnected from ourselves, we're walking around with this gaping hole inside of us, you know, empty, sort of alone in the world, as you quite rightly say, you know, the mask is on, mm. smiling, you know, it's nearly like this, it makes me think of the smiling assassin, Ash, when you talk about the smile all the time. Uh, you know, so it's like the smile, smile, you know. Uh, Pollyanna, you know, mm. we're dancing really fast. And if I keep dancing really, really fast, no one will actually work out that I'm feeling like I've got this, the wind whistling through the middle of me because I feel so disconnected and alone in the world. And, of course, if you're living out of perfectionism, just to speak to your point, mm. we're not going to tell anybody. Mm. Not going to. And, of course, we're often surrounded by people who support us in that. And, of course, if we're still very connected to our family in many ways, we're playing the role in the family, maybe of being the perfectionist or the good girl or, I mean, sometimes we're playing the, the role of being the bad one, you know, the bad rebellious. So, yeah, that, that sense of being terribly empty. And I think there's a, there's a kind of split here, if I can just bring this in. We have two things to do here. We're, we're going to look at our trauma first. Uh, well, hopefully we get in a recovery and we stop using whatever substance or whatever process trauma we have, whether it's sex, gambling, work, you know, gaming is another one. Uh, gam yeah, I mentioned gambling. All of those, and we have drugs and alcohol, you know, any of the prescription drugs. So if we've got an addiction running, we need to get into some early recovery around that stop the substance and stop the acting out. And, of course, we know that the best way to do that is to go into a treatment centre and get um, detox and then go into a 12-step program. But the secondary rub is that we will then have to address our childhood trauma. Mm. Now, for people like yourself who were extremely brave to do that in one fell swoop, some people can't manage that. They've just got to settle in their recovery get three to six months up and then go and do their trauma work. Mm. You were able to do it at the same time. But they, in my my opinion, certainly P. Melody's opinion also, is we have two different sy symptoms here or two different diseases, if you will, so we need two different covers and they need to be held in concurrent mm. with one another. Mm. The trauma stuff is really important because if we don't address it, it'll, it will come back up in our recovery later on. That you can see that happen with some people. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. There. No, that's fine. Is is the risk die that by doing the trauma work too early on in your recovery, it could um, trigger a relapse? 
Certainly it can trigger you into a relapse and can trigger you into a disassociative state. Uh, if you've had a lot of, you know, if you're taking a lot of drugs, you can be become quite so, so go into a psychosis. Um, yeah, so you've got to be very careful, which is why changes uh, in and of itself is run in the hospital when you have 24-hour care. Mm. I have a lot of people come here to the practice and say, I want to do the changes work with you, and I think, well, whoa, mm. we're not doing it here. You know, I'm not going to take you deep and then send you home to cook spaghetti bolognese for the kids. Like, it's not happening. Um, so we do offer it now as a standalone program, so that's helpful too. Yeah, that's really good to know. So if people aren't doing the three-week inpatient program, they can still tap into this work maybe, mm. yeah, as you said, six months after they've, they've started their journey into recovery. Mm. Yeah, I, I've had people that have come into changes and they've had 20 and 30 years up because 20 and 30 years ago we weren't talking about trauma in 12-step recovery. Mm. Well, but now we are. So they come in and do their work as a sober person. Mm, so important. Can you tell me a little bit about your own experience with changes? Now, if I'm correct, did you go to the Meadows to do Survivors, which is the, I suppose, the sister program? Yeah. Look, I was going, yeah. <laughs> they wanted me to go and do Survivors. They, we call it changes in Australia. They call it Survivors in America. I like changes better. But anyway. Uh, but you know, Ash, I'd been, I'd done so much process work in changes with clients that I really felt like I would probably have been sitting in their program going, I wonder why the therapist did that. Why didn't she do that? And why didn't he do that? And, you know, and so what I suggested to them was that, you know, send me by all means. I'm happy to go and do the learning, but let me do the love addiction and love avoidant workshop. Because that's the next level down. Absolutely, and the so changes one is about you know not yeah yeah not to eighteen um, childhood trauma. They do changes too, which is a day program, which is how the trauma continues to show up in your life today, just in everyday life, and it could be difficulty with colleagues or bosses and things like that, or relationships. But the third one what we call changes three now is the love addiction, love avoidance. It's how does the trauma continue to show up in your intimate relationships? Mm, which I think might need to be. And that was a wild ride. I bet. Oh, my gosh, that would be a, a whole nother podcast in and of itself and such an important topic. Um, when you were – so when you were mm. over at the Meadows, which is in Arizona, mm. did they mm – -hmm. Take is this where you were first introduced to the codependency work, or did, had you already started that when you started working with South Pacific? And can you explain for our listeners how this model came to Australia? Of course. Um, the first answer is no. I'd already started to work with codependency before I went to the Meadows, mm -hmm. um, and the how it came to be was that Pia Melody, as I said earlier. Uh, was a woman in recovery, was working as a uh, nursing unit manager at the Meadows, uh, was not, I don't think she was an owner of the place at that point. And she was 26 years clean and sober in her recovery and working a program, but struggling. And struggling with a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, and I would say PTSD. That would be how I, complex PTSD. And she was, um, she was sort of getting very, 
despondent about her life. This is her story. I've t- she's told me this story herself and was, you know, head in the hands one day going, I can't go on. You know, she's at home in, a, in her uh, home on her own. Can't go on. It's, it's all too much. She didn't know what to do. She was doing everything she thought she was being asked to do. Now, this is, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and she was um, probably, it would be fair to say she was suicidal. Whether she had a plan or not, I'm not quite sure. I don't think she did, but she was just extremely despondent. Mm. Anyway, over, she sort of got this sense from, you know, head and hands, I can't go on, and she got this sense of you can't go yet, you've got work to do. Like, hello, there's no wow. one else here, what's going on? Mm. And now what happened was over, yeah, it was it was probably for her, she would say it was a spiritual experience. Uh, she didn't understand what any of it meant. Nobody's talking trauma. Mm. Like everybody talks about trauma now. Mm. Nobody was talking about it. And over the next little while, the model of developmental immaturity, which is what she called it, started to come to her, which is where... She outlines the nature of a child, what a child needs. Then we get the core issue of what the child gets from that. So, for example, the first one is you're allowed to be of value in a family system. Mm. Not because you get an A in maths or you're head of the minute ball team or the cricket team or you look after your siblings or whatever, but just because you stand upright and breathe in and out. You're of value, full stop. And if you are of value and treated that way in your family system, you learn healthy self-esteem. And you and I both know what that means. It's a sense of your own innate preciousness coming back to the small one, it comes from inside us and goes out to other people in our relationships, all people that we meet. Mm. And if we don't, if we're not allowed to be of value and we don't learn healthy self-esteem, you alluded to earlier, you'll go to a place of less than, I'm less than others or I'm better than others. And you'll flip-flop between the two. Now, if you're sitting less than, you're in a world of pain because it's the feelings in your body. And you're in better than, well, you don't feel much of anything. Mm. So what happens is as adults in our lives, we flip-flop. Now, there's four other core issues, boundaries, reality, dependency, and moderation. But there's a whole lot of presenting and secondary problems that come out of not having health esteem, self-esteem. And you've also mentioned them, which are, you know, addiction, various disorders, enmeshment, um, depression, process addiction, spirituality issues. There's a whole raft of them. And out of those, that they are the ones that end up pushing us into getting some form of treatment or going to see somebody, a therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist. We want to actually get to a point where we integrate those childhood experiences so we then start to feel like we're functional, which means we can esteem ourselves from within. Mm. So that's just one of them. Yeah. Can we go through the others? I would love to explain a little bit more about um, boundaries and um, how you know that how that's connected to the nature of the child being vulnerable so can you explain mm. for our listeners what that sure. looks like if you're too vulnerable or invulnerable okay so if you're not allowed to be appropriate you know we all age appropriate vulnerability so what you're capable of at five you know you're much more capable as a 10 year old 
but in our family system, we, we, we have to be allowed to be appropriately age, appropriately vulnerable towards it, depending on our age. Out of that, we'll learn boundaries. Like, where do you begin and end and where do I begin and end? Now, when you're raised in a family system, for example, where you're enmeshed with your parent, you've got no boundaries, no emotional boundaries and often no physical boundaries, no, no, um, no physical boundary, no emotional boundary, no sexual boundary. Mm. So um, if we're not taught about external boundaries or internal boundaries, we will be uh, too vulnerable, which means we have none, uh, or we're invulnerable, which means we have walls. And so would an example of being too vulnerable be, say, oversharing or like emotional dumping? Yes, telling all. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. You stand at the bus stop and someone says to you, oh, hi, how are you going? Now, they don't do it now because everyone's got their head in their phones. <laughs> but back in the day before mobile phones, they all did. Hi, how are you going? And, you know, you'd say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm good now. If you've got no boundaries, that person's just being polite. Mm. But if you've got no boundaries, you're likely to divulge all sorts of things about your personal life. And it's like the person won't say anything because it's like, I just want to get on the bus and get to work. I don't want to hear all this. You know, it's like they're dumping. They're telling all or they're letting other people direct their life, direct their reality. You know, it's like like if you say to somebody, uh, say, you know, you're talking to your mum you say, I'm feeling really, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I'm really, you know, it's hard. I'm really having a hard time. Well, no, you're not. No, you're not having a hard time at all. No, 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 no. You know, it's like they'll tell you how you feel. Mm. They can't hear your reality. Mm. Yes, so there's a whole raft of uh, boundary violations that we talk about in South Pacific. Yes, and it's interesting. Many of them. I, I, I would hazard a guess that it's not just people with, addiction troubles that that have troubles around boundaries i think it's one one that many people that i know you know in and out of the rooms and in different stages of life it's i think it's one that people are it's a constant evolution and and something that we need to be made more aware of for sure well physical boundaries are important but what and people understand that you know whether they're standing near somebody and they think oh i don't know that i want to stand right next to you right now there's no there's been no conversation. It's an energy thing. But the internal boundary from your heart to your abdomen, this is the part that protects your truth. People don't know about that. They can, you know, you can actually stop people attacking you energetically, you know, mm. rather than take on a criticism. You can allow it to bounce back to them. You don't have to take it on. It's very powerful. It is. You've just reminded me of something that you actually taught me to do in changes and that was to create an energetic boundary around myself so that, and it's something that I've continued to do in the years gone by so that if I'm, because we can't just hide away in our houses and and escape from the world. That's not the solution either because then we fall back into disconnection. But not everybody is, is going to be well um, and some people are going to be toxic. And so to be able to create that energetic boundary, which for me looks like a white light that I wrap around myself before I enter into those challenging conversations mm. or environments has just been so powerful because then you do mm. you do stay energetically yeah. safe and protected. Mm. I had a great, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a therapist and 
we were talking about, you know, having the difficult conversation. You've got to have the difficult conversation with somebody. Let's say it's someone in your family or maybe it's a colleague. And so the question always to ask yourself is, okay, I've got to have this difficult conversation. How long do I think this conversation is going to last? Oh, maybe back and forth, maybe 15 minutes, right? So the first question you ask before you even open your mouth or go anywhere near the person to have the conversation is, do I have 15 minutes of functional adult in me right now? Because if I don't have 15 minutes of functional adult in me right now, do not have the conversation. Wait until you're settled, grounded, know what you're going to say. Have support afterwards because, you know, you'll feel maybe a bit discombobulated afterwards. I thought it was a great thing. And that's, you know, the talking boundary, the listening boundary, that's the internal one. Mm. And so there's a few little tricks like that, you know. Mm. How long do I need to be functional here and can I do that? It's such Mm. simple stuff when it's outlined and yet we we often don't have these tools to pick up. Okay, let me move on to the next one, which is all around... um, allow you know Pia says that um, children are perfectly imperfect um, and there's this concept of the precious child and I think that's what um, when when she talks about the nature of the child being imperfect that's what this is all about Um, and I mentioned earlier I relate to this one very much so because when this is out of balance so the core issue is how it impacts your reality and when this is out of balance Mm -hmm. you can flip into being good and perfect or bad and rebellious, which I I did both, um, particularly in my teenage years. I would go from being really naughty and rebellious and doing all sorts of things that I knew my parents were really upset about, including drinking and taking drugs and all of those things. Um, and then I would, you know, I would yeah. go to school and I would I had I was music captain and prefect and and applied myself academically and. <laughs> it, it just this complete juxtaposition. Um, can you explain a little bit more about, yeah, this core issue around re- your reality? <clears throat> okay, so you're absolutely right. We are as children, we, and even as adults, we're allowed to be imperfectly imperfect. Um, and if we're not allowed to be, if we're, we're harshly judged for making a mistake or coming home late from school or whatever, not getting the A in maths, we don't sit in reality. Now, this, I believe, is one of the areas where we're talking about being gaslit as children, um, which was not a term used back then, but it is today. Uh, So if we're not allowed to be perfectly imperfect, we don't sit in reality. And the reality is in four areas. It's in the body. How do I see myself physically? Um, how do I treat myself? Am I an over-exerciser, for example, or do I not can't get off the lounge? Mm. So there's always extremes in this one. Mm. Uh, how do I, you know, this is where a lot of disordered eating comes from. Mm-hmm. So we're not in reality. I'm, you know, I can't eat anything because I don't want to put on weight. And, and you're talking to someone who's terribly, terribly thin with their anorexia. Mm. Um. The thinking, so it's either we're over overthinking and overwhelmed in our thinking or we can't hold a thought. You know, it's nearly like we're numb in our thinking. Mm. So, again, it's the extreme. Uh, feelings, the same thing. I know what I'm feeling and I share it. No, that's not how we do it. It's like um, I'm, I'm too, they're explosive and overwhelming or I've got none. So when we talk about it, 
not being imper- not allowed to be imperfect, not sitting in reality and then going from bad rebellious to good perfect. The bad rebellious is the wounded child. Mm. You know, that's feelings in your body. And the good perfect is the, you know, adult ad- adaption of that where we're walled, we don't, you know, we're not actually feeling very much of anything and it's all a show, like you were saying, you know, I talk about the smiling assassin. Mm. It's like, whoa, okay, you know, she's turned up, let's be careful. And the very simple uh, functional adult area we need to get to is to allow ourselves to be that we're imperfect, except that we're imperfect first, and so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's a very it's a very deep one because there's so many levels on that for body thinking, feelings, and behaviour. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I love what you said just there about you have to be able to accept yourself as being imperfect to then allow other people yeah because I totally relate to um because I have in the past put such high expectations on myself I then have them for those around Mm. me and it's not fair you know whether that's relationships friendships no you know it just doesn't work just because I think I would act speak behave in a certain way doesn't mean that person has to or needs to or any of the rest so mm. yeah really really good stuff yeah it's harsh judgment of ourselves i mean if we're doing it to ourselves mm. we're doing it to everybody else mm. it all comes from inside to out not outside in you know that's the other sort of myth we've been told you know it's like being a disney princess you know if i'm just pretty enough and i'm sweet enough and i do all the right things that life won't life won't touch me and it'll all be easy well that's just nonsense isn't it really oh my god so Preciousness has got to come from inside, outside, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Now, the fourth um, nature is dependent. So a child uh, needs to be dependent. Um, and the core issue that this implicates yep. is dependency, which makes a lot of sense. And, the, and then the, you can be anti-dependent or too dependent. What, is the, what does the balance look like there? This looks like um, there's nine dependency needs. We talk about adverse childhood experiences in in the profession and the nine dependency needs are food, clothing, shelter, medical attention, dental attention, spiritual development. Uh, La, 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 la. I always forget another couple. Um, They'll come to me. Mm -hmm. There's nine of them. And if we don't get them, then we don't learn healthy dependency. Now, we are all interdependent on one another. We're pack animals. We live in community. That's the reality of the human species. But if we don't get our non-dependency needs, a couple of things will happen. Now, she says too dependent, which is that terrible sense of needing other people to fix us, needing other people to make us right, needing other people to validate that I'm doing the right thing or anti-dependent, no needs, no wants. So that it goes like this. I'm needless and wantless. That is, I'm never going to ask for anything and I don't know what I want. You see, most people will get what they want, but they won't get what they need. And the reason they don't get what they need is because they have no idea what they need. They don't, you, you know, I start most groups saying, have you got any needs for the day? And everyone goes, ah, well, uh, no, I don't think so. You know, it's like no one's ever asked them. Needless and wantless, uh, I know what I need. The second one, I know what I need, 
Uh, sorry, I know what I want and I get it, but I don't know what I need. Mm. The third one is I know what I need and I want you to fulfil it, so I'm waiting for you to come and make sure it happens for me. I'm not asking. Again, Sam, silent. And the fourth one, which is the piece of resistance and the one I lived out of for years and decades was I get my needs and wants confused. <laughs> you know the story. So I come home from work, let's say, and I go, I've had a terribly hard day and I'm depleted. It's been just awful. And I walk in the door and my partner says to me, um, how was your day? Yeah, yeah, no, no, fine, 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 right? And I go straight to the home office, of course, now because we all have one of those with COVID, go straight to the home and I, you know, I don't want to. And what I really need from my partner is a hug and maybe a cup of tea and for them to say, look, I'm going to make dinner tonight or whatever, right? So you, you go and have a bath and relax, right? But I don't even let my partner know that I'm depleted I go straight for the home office, I turn on the computer, I start tapping around and I buy $500 worth of shoes. <laughs> now, I feel great for about a nanosecond because I've got a new pair of shoes or two maybe depending on what site you're on. Uh, and then, you know, I still have that unmet need in here. The emptiness is still there. And if I'm not careful, I'll pick a fight with them later in, in the night. I mean, it's just a disaster. So I get my needs and wants confused. Oh so God. very good to be very clear <laughs> about what do I need right now to take care of myself. And it can be simple answers. I need to rest. I need a cup of tea. I need to go for a walk. I need to not talk to anyone for five mm. minutes. And just asking for As it. opposed to what do I want. Yeah. Mm. Oh, my mm. gosh. I'm having light bulb moments. As and, we... of course, we don't. If you, yeah, if if you don't, if you haven't had your dependency needs met as ch a child, if you ask for anything and got shut down, you're going to be in an adult relationship where not, you're not asking for anything because for them to say no to you, even if they were functionally saying no, you're not going to hear no in a functional way. You're going to hear, I'm rejecting you. Yeah. So you're going to skew the data. Mm. That's the other thing we do in the reality one. We skew the data thinking. We don't hear the... We don't hear the words that are being say, said to us. We hear the meaning that we put on the words. Mm. And you've mentioned the phrase functional adult a couple of, a couple of times now. And so the functional adult is the person that sits in the middle, right? They're, they're, they're yeah. comfortable within themselves. They've done the work. They're not reactive. They're, yeah, okay, cool. They're coming back to that space. Well, and they're not perfect either. No, well, exactly <laughs> they're allowed right. to, They're allowed to make a mistake. Yeah. They're allowed to make a mistake and they're allowed to come back and say, I'm really sorry about that. I was really out of line when I said that before about your mother, you know, For or whatever. Sure. For sure. <laughs> Okay, there's one more um, nature that I wanted to – well, there's only one left on the model, so that's what I wanted to talk about next, and that is um, the yeah. nature of a child to be spontaneous and open, uh, which um, implicates the mm -hmm. core issue of moderation, and that looks like being out of control mm -hmm. or controlling. Now, mm -hmm. um, one mm -hmm. of the big things that I've noticed being in recovery um, and that is a similarity that I share with a lot of other people in recovery is this need to control and to um, to hold on to life and almost squeeze the life out of life. And something that, you know, was, I, I heard in the rooms was to wear life like a loose garment. So what yes. 
what, what, how, I mean, I'm still trying to work out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I think we all are. <laughs> I mean, children in and of themselves are spontaneous and open. If you've got little kids around you, you know, they kind of make mess. They jump on the bed after it's been made when they're told they're not allowed to, you know. They let the dog out because the dog doesn't look like it's happy inside or whatever, you know, or they let it inside when it's outside. And, and if we're not allowed to be spontaneous and open as children, which again is an age-appropriate state, then we don't learn moderation. And this is where in a functional home limits are set. Not draconian rules, but limits, you know, like it's now, yeah, it's okay, go and have a play after, you know, school, um, no, now you've got to come in and have a wash and eat your dinner and then you're going to have a bath and then you're going to go to bed. You know, there's a rhythm to the way we do life with little children and even up to teenagers. It all gets kind of put out to pasture a bit when they're teenagers for a little while, but that's just part of the growth and development of a teenager. But if we've been, if we set limits that are functional, that are not draconian, the children feel safe in that. If you work with um, clients who were raised in addicted family households or families with severe mental illness, then you will find that you have those adverse childhood experiences and they will always be in some level traumatised or abused. They don't know how to regulate their own emotional life because it was never modelled to them. They were never taught how to. And that's where moderation comes in. And when I started working with this model, moderation was the one word on the whole model I didn't like too much because much of my life had never been moderate. <laughs> it is now. Mm. Uh, and the out of control, I, I believe, you know, certainly for people in addiction, they understand this. But also people with mental illness, say uh, severe mental, um, like depression and anxiety, so they're out of control doesn't look like an addict's out of control, but they're out of control might be, they're going, it's spiralling into a depression. They can feel themselves going. They don't ask for help. They don't reach out to the professionals that support them. They just go to bed for three days and turn their phone off mm. and have their whole family system distressed because they're worried about them. So the out of control can be a sort of nearly like finger to people who care about you. Mm. Whereas the controlling is that, the opposite end of it, as you well have just talked about, where, you know, I must do this and I might, you know, there's no give in anything. Mm. There's no, there's no give. It's rigid. It's, yeah. you know, that whole uh, stream of, um, you know, being better than, being invulnerable, being good, perfect, anti-dependent, controlling, there, all of that world where we're, the adult adaptation for the wounded child is that I don't feel and I wall. And that's what I do to survive. It's a defence mechanism. Mm. Mm. Because to feel in the wounded child aspect, which is less than too vulnerable, bad, rebellious, too dependent and out of control, you're in a lot of pain there. And that's what usually pushes people into treatment because they can't deal, deal with the pain of the wound anymore. Yeah, they get Does that. Does that make sense, what I just said? Very, very much yeah. so, absolutely. And so yeah. with all of that, thank you so much for explaining the model. I think it's, I mean, I remember the first time I heard it, I was fascinated and 
time and time again today a perfect example I've heard it again and it just blows my mind as much as it did the first time Mm -hmm. but for our listeners Mm -hmm. can you now draw the relation back to what this model has to do with our topic for today which was codependency Mm -hmm. yes okay so when we're in codependency we we have been raised in a system where we've lost connection with our authentic self so when i was talking earlier about the small part of ourself that is not looked after um, we can't then have we're not taught how to have healthy relationships with ourselves and healthy intimate relationships with ourselves so therefore we can't have healthy intimate relationships with others so we have we have a lens that we look through which basically would say something like i'm not safe in the world uh what i you know i don't i'm not worthy Mm. i don't count i'm Mm. bad i'm dumb you know there's a whole raft of core beliefs and if we're looking at life through that lens it's you know you can have someone standing in front of you doing star jumps ash saying you are fabulous ash you are the greatest you are everything you know you are it's just right it's just a little bit blip on the radar we have a bit of a difficult time we can get through it you're just not going to go there you're going to go yeah 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 and but through your lens it's i can't do that doesn't matter what i do it's not good enough Mm. or i can't sustain life as it is Mm. now codependency comes when we've learnt to look to others to tell us what to think, what to feel and how to behave. And we've become overly dependent on other people for any validation at all in our life. Mm. The classic uh, codependent and dysfunctional family system is don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. So we live in a family system where we don't talk about anything that's real, we don't trust, we don't feel. And from that point, we start to hide the true essence of who we are. Codependency comes out of this because we, you know, we go into denial about things. It's like I, I, I have difficulty identifying what I'm feeling. Uh, I minimise, I alter, I deny how I truly feel. Um, I perceive myself as completely unselfish and dedicated to the well-being of others. Now, that's not actually true because if we're people pleasers, we're fundamentally dishonest. Sorry, folks, for that any of you blew, out there listening that are. That one blew my uh, mind, yeah, when I realised that. I know, <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the low self-esteem patterns would be I can't, I have difficulty making decisions, uh, I judge everything I think, say and do harshly, Um I'm embarrassed if I do so. You know, what I want is recognition and validation. But then when I get it, I'm embarrassed about it uh, and I can't accept it. Mm. Um, I don't ask anybody to do anything for me. I won't ask for my needs to be met. Uh, And it is what you think of me is more important to me than what I think of me. And so I'm often judging. I'm not asking you, by the way. I'm just having a relationship with you, friendship, relationship, and I'm judging you all the time. It's like, do you think she likes me? Do you think she not? Did she invite me? Did she not invite me? Is she talking to me? Is she looking? How did she greet me? You know, it's like we're doing head mile after head mile after head mile. And I don't perceive myself, this is the crux of it, as lovable or worthwhile as a human being. 
Mm. Um, I'm too sensitive. Uh, this is the uh, an interesting one. People will often say, I'm very, very loyal, right? It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. I'm extremely loyal and I remain in harmful situations too long. But I wrap it up like I'm being loyal. I don't look at the reality, which is I am allowing myself to be harmed in this. Mm. And nothing about the other person has indicated that they give any regard to me, positive regard to me. Um, I'll often have difficulty expressing um, opinions that are different to my own. Um, I accept sex when I want love. A lot of people do it. A lot of women do that. Not only women, but... And I compromise my own values and integrity to avoid others' anger or rejection. When you come across someone who's terrified of other people's anger or ter terrified of conflict, I hear that a lot, oh, I don't like conflict. It's not about that they don't like conflict. It's that they don't, they can't back themselves in anything. They don't trust their own judgment. They don't trust their own opinion. Mm. Does that answer some of that question? It answers a lot of the question. I think so much of what you've described, I relate to having been there or still, you know, um, facing some of those different mm. um, indicators today. I think a lot of people will be able to relate. So if a lot of people are relating to this concept or idea of codependency, diet, what are the negative impacts? Like other than the obvious of, well, that wouldn't feel very nice. Like what are the serious impacts of codependency? We end up feeling used and abused. Mm. Often codependents will have, you know, this sort of, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a rage attack, but they blow up in anger a lot and they they live a lot out of that passive-aggressive way of expressing themselves. They sort of stew in resentment and then it comes out sideways in this passive-aggressive way. So they're constantly frustrated in their own inner world mm. Um then after they've lost their temper or had a, a, a resentment or an outburst, then they will go into feelings of regret and then they go into criticism of themselves and then they blame themselves and then they feel more ashamed of their behaviour. So the negative impact of being codependent primarily is that you lose yourself and then you spend a lot of time trying to judge how to be in the world based on how other people treat you. Now, if you have no real sense of worth, you're a sitting target to sit in relationships that are abusive in some way or stay in workplaces that are abusive or traumatising and not be able to stand up for yourself and step out of it. So it's like I call it often the resent, rescue, resent, uh, regret pattern, rescue, resent, regret. You know, it's we go in to re rescue someone because we think we can do it better than them. Well, codependents often believe that other people are incapable of taking care of themselves. And do you remember how early you talked about the out-of-control controlling? So yeah. if you've got a codependent who gets their worth out of controlling situations, circumstances and themselves and other people, they will often try to convince other people of what they should think and how they should feel. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll go in to rescue. The other person hasn't asked them to do anything, by the way. <laughs> But they'll see, it, they'll see that they can do it better than the other person. So they'll sort of, I often say to clients, would you stop riding in on the white horse and saving them? They don't want to be saved. Yeah. They're actually quite happy living in the dysfunction or the mess that they're in. They don't need you to do anything. 
if at most all you ever do is say, for example, seems to me you're struggling a bit with that, you know, putting together the CV and getting some work. Would you like some help with it? Now, if they say no, hear the no. <laughs> because if you can trust their no, you will be able to trust their yes. And that's what codependents get it all muddled up. Mm. You know how codependents say yes when they mean no and no when they're so they do a lot of, yeah, they'll often be very generous with gifts. Uh, they'll often uh, be resentful if their advice and guidance isn't taken. They certainly ignore their own needs, you know. I mean, there's a sort of raft of them, but you're getting the drift. of When I say in one sentence, they abandon themselves. Mm. They do a lot of self-abandonment when they're in their codependent pattern because it's actually always about someone else. It's never about them. And for them to come back to themselves, they will often feel like they're abandoning the people in their lives. Most of the people in their life breathe a sigh of relief. It's like, I think heavens. (laughs) They've stopped looking after me. Exactly. I can breathe finally. (laughs) So Mm. can you explain then, I mean, it all sounds like doom and gloom at this stage, but there is hope and this is yes, a recovery yes. podcast. So yep. can you share for our listeners, mm-hmm. like what does the road to recovery look like for someone that identifies as being a codependent? Well, I, the first thing to do is to recognise it. That's, of course, the first thing. Um, the other thing that will feel is that you'll often, I, I just one other thing that came to mind is you'll often be quite resentful because nobody's looking after your needs Nobody's getting that you need to be helped Mm. and you feel neglected. But the reality is I bet you're not asking for any help. You know, you're not saying anything to anyone. Uh, So the first thing, the first solution is to have an awareness. The second one is to stop putting the superwoman cape on Mm. and stop getting on that white horse and riding in to rescue people. Do not offer unsolicited advice. Do not offer unsolicited help. If you believe someone could be benefit, you could help someone and they'd benefit from it. You ask for permission, mm. and often uh, we'll ask them to go back through their history and look at each relationship in their life. It sounds daunting, I know, but it's not as hard as you think. And say you're dealing with someone who's 35. I say to people, well, let's just do naught to not to, to five or not to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 35, 30 to 35. Just do it in blocks. Mm. Main relationships in your life, how it's, you know, how those things have played out in your life, how you feel about the person uh, now and how you feel you've been let down. And then, you know, what's your role in it? Like what have you done in the relationship to feel as irritated, angry or let down as you do? Um, this woman I referred to earlier that was in, she, you know, now is saying, I, you know, I can't believe I'm such a people pleaser. And all of that comes out of her childhood of having to try and sort of do star jumps in front of her mother to get any sort of recognition at all. Hmm. First husband was the same. It's like we need to go back and have a look at what happened back there. Not to blame them because they didn't mean to do any harm but to then get a clear picture of where it came from so you can move into the next part of your life without doing that in your relationships. She's done it in all the business and intimate relationships. So she's very lost in it now mm, and, and it's very painful. So, you know, go on. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, until you identify the pattern, there's no way it's going to change. So it might seem like scary work, but the freedom that you get on the other side of it is well worth any of the discomfort Mm. that you'll have to face by looking Mm. at it for for a moment. Yeah, it's as though you have to come up up high Mm. in your life and look down at what happens and how, you know, where are the relationships that are important to you and how have they played out. And in, in many cases when there's not, you know, when there's not total fracture in a family, with some recovery on board, you can have relationships and, um, sorry, conversations, the difficult conversations, you know, the functional ones I was talking about earlier, you know, we have to be functional for 15 minutes. <laughs> you can have those relationships and say, look, I realise that, you know, perhaps I've been um, too directive, too smothering, um, you know, I've projected my fear onto you, I've been frightened for you not getting work. I need. I now know I need to keep, take my hands off. You know, it's the hardest thing. You know, it's like they do ha- life like this, you know, gripping onto everything. That's the control you talked about. It's like take the hands off. Mm. Let it be. It'll find its own level and you won't be the one that has to do all the work. Mm. So you'll start having more meaningful and loving and open and transparent relationships with the people that are important to you. And that's what we really want in our lives. Yeah, that's what we're seeking at the end of the day, isn't it? That true, authentic connection. Yeah. Good stuff. And uh, for those listening who might want some more information around this, there's there's people like yourselves who specialise in this kind of work. There's also CODA, which is a 12-step recovery program for codependence as well. So um, that can be looked up. Um, do you recommend that, Di? Do you know much about the program what do you think look code is you know code is very yeah no code is very good i think also there's uh if you've had a lot of trauma in your history um you may consider adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families they do a lot of that work too that's quite a powerful program and that's Uh, but you always go to the meetings that yeah and you'd go to the meetings where they're talking recovery not they're talking the solution, not recovery. This is, you know, I mean, make no mistake that this is a notoriously difficult pattern to break, but it doesn't mean it's impossible to change. It just means you'll have to practice it a lot and have people around you that support you to change the way you do life. The principal thing that you have to do is be kind to yourself. It's a process. It's not a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, and you'll begin to start to notice when you're trying to rescue someone and whether it leads to resentment or regret, and that's where the awareness comes and that's where the change can happen. And I think it's absolutely fine to say to someone, whoa, I just realised I was um, stepping out of my own hula hoop then. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have, um, you know, just assumed you wanted my input. Now, most of the time, if they're used to you, they'll probably go, thanks for stepping out, you know. It's like, <laughs> thank heavens. So gently, gently is what I want to say to your listeners, you know. Mm, that's mm. awesome. Yeah, Therapy's yeah. good too. A lot of people are very aware of, yeah, and Peter, Peter, Peter has a couple of books, Facing Codependency, and uh, she has the Codependency Workbook, which if you don't want to get into too much with, um, you know, a 12-step program, you could do that with a therapist, you know. So that's really powerful information. Uh, and you do a lot like- of writing about yourself. 
Yeah, that's great. And why not self-discovery? You know, it's, I guess, again, it's all about just putting a light, creating an an awareness, and then you can work through it. So, so good. Di, I can't thank you enough for giving your time to the show today and sharing your pearls of wisdom. If our listeners want to find you online or hear more from you, where should they go? They can go. They can just go to my website. Or they can go to my LinkedIn page. I'm not hard to find. Trust me, I seem to be everywhere. Excellent. Yeah. I'll make sure I post that information in the show notes if people want to track you down or follow you on your socials. Di, we say here on the show that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So again, I thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and for being here on the show today. Very welcome. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Ash. Thanks, Di. Take care. 